It's been a difficult spring. <laughs> difficult doesn't really even seem like the right word to cover it, does it? My family and I have spent the last year and a half in some form of transition or another, and one of the things that has been most difficult is trying to find any way to describe how I'm feeling from one day to the next, one moment to the next in the midst of transition. Uh, some people say that transition is the hardest thing for humans to go through. Am I sad? Am I angry? Am I hopeful? Am I grieving or confused? Am I excited? Am I... I, I don't know what I am feeling most of the time. And I should be clear that these transitions that I'm talking about for me in my life have, have mostly been for good and, and things are good and we are okay and we're making it through the, the pandemic and our kids are healthy, our parents are healthy and that's all good. And yet I continue to sort of struggle to know what to do with what I'm feeling. And then when I see other people going through transitions that really are painstaking, the transition from life to death, the transitions forced by injustice, we aren't a culture that knows much of what to do with our emotions. I mean, we know that they're there and that they are a thing, but we usually try to rationalize them in some way. And we prefer to rationalize other people's emotions even more so, so that they don't, I don't know, get on us. It seems that most of us have lived or are living most of our lives experiencing our emotions inside of what we are told are culturally appropriate boxes, spaces that we've been given to that what we feel are supposed to fit inside of comfortably or not. This past week has me wondering, <laughs> what is the culturally appropriate box for agony, rage, stomach-turning grief? What are families who have seen their loved one murdered supposed to do? What's the appropriate way to express their emotions? What is culturally appropriate when a police officer seems unfazed as he kills a man on the street, in the middle of the day, on camera, with bystanders pleading with him to lift his knee even just a little, but he doesn't? How does our culture appropriately appropriate such an act? And all of this on top of three months of shutdown, isolation, infectious disease, unprecedented loss of income, 103,000 deaths and counting, no clear path for economic recovery, no plan to mitigate the infectious spread so that we can get back to work and play without endangering our most vulnerable. How do we express our emotions in these days, let alone reckon with their depth, 
when we don't do well with our emotions on an average day in normal times. My experience is is that most of us good white boys and girls, churched and unchurched alike, were raised being taught that anger was unseemly, almost always inappropriate, and rage. Anger is more forceful and fervent and powerful sibling. (laughs) Well, rage was never appropriate. And not only should it never be mentioned, ideally it should never be felt at all. There would just be no reason for it, we are taught. And if there's something enraging you, then, well, you are most likely just being self-indulgent, selfish. And rage was often threatened with punishment if we did not stop that emotion. Not the behavior, but the emotion itself. An entire arm of human emotion, effectively forbidden, locked up with the only key being shame that must be endured to gain access to it. And interestingly enough, our rage as white boys and girls wouldn't have likely put us in any danger. What do we do when rage comes upon us? How do we wrestle with the rage and the corresponding heartbreak all around us? Or maybe it's the heartbreak and the corresponding rage all around us. How do we wrestle with our own? Have you found any ways to express these emotions that seem to occupy your entire body and not just your head? It's not that emotions are experienced in the head. It's just that it seems that using our head, our thinking, our intellect is one of the ways to inadequately cope with our emotions. We just primarily think about them and never venture into actually feeling our feelings, particularly the most powerful ones. Grief, heartbreak, rage. It seems that many of us, myself included, need to be reminded that feelings, emotions, are actually, it's specifically intended to be felt and not just thought about. It's honestly the only way through them. This is important to remember when we've been avoiding our emotions for so long that we imagine we will drown in them if we allow ourselves to feel. And of course, there are certain clinical situations in which this might be somewhat possible. But most of us, most of the time, the best way for humans to experience and process our emotions is to indeed allow ourselves to truly feel and be affected by them. We forget so often that the more we suppress and repress our emotions, the more likely they are to come out with force, more powerful, more bitter, more violent. 
Our emotions are there for a reason. And oftentimes that reason is to remind us of our humanity or the humanity of someone else. There seems to be something important, if not necessary, to watching the video of Officer Derek Chauvin press his knee into the neck of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis. I know there are some who will claim to be too squeamish or too tender-hearted to handle it, and that they will abstain, and I get that. Some might say that it's not necessary to actually watch the video. I get it, they say. It, it was horrible. Yes, it, <laughs> it was horrible. But the worst part about watching the video is, is not knowing that you will see someone die, but that Mr. Floyd dies in the midst of flagrant and conspicuous inhumanity. I thought I didn't need to watch it either. I'd kind of been avoiding it all week. But then when I did, all 10 minutes of it, it's not so much that I wish that I hadn't seen it or that somehow it was too much to handle. As it was that I wished that I hadn't had to see it. It seemed important to experience my stomach turn, turn while watching the video. Why didn't Officer Chauvin lift his knee a little? I mean, even just a little. Why? What was the purpose? What was the intent? I mean, to my eyes, and I think to many, it seemed hard to say that the intent was anything other than to kill George Floyd. I thought to myself, does this officer think that he is the law? Too hardened, too arrogant to heed the pleas of the strangers nearby, reminding him of the obvious that George was not only clearly not resisting arrest, but physically couldn't as he passed out? It seemed important to feel my body become confused with terror, rage, disgust, disbelief, heartbreak, to experience the inability to decide whether to scream, wail, or destroy the iPad displaying such horror on the coffee table in front of me. And then I thought, there's almost no chance that that will ever happen to me or my parents, or my children. Almost no chance that we will be the ones on the ground, face in the pavement, with an officer's knee on our neck. And then I thought that there are others, though, other parents, showing their young boys this video and teaching them all the while that even if they don't resist arrest, it might not make a difference teaching them that someday in this country, the odds are you or someone you know will experience abuse at the hands of a police officer and perhaps experience even what George Floyd did. I can't imagine what you tell a child that even if you don't resist arrest, that you could still be killed 
how do you teach somebody how to deal with a situation like that? I guess the point is, is that they shouldn't have to. And some of us who don't have to teach our children that should probably be teaching them something else. In some ways, it seemed like the literal least that I could do as an attempt at understanding what people of color endure every day in this country, understanding that a video never even comes close to matching understanding. Officer Chauvin was not enforcing the law. He meted out his own maladjusted sense of justice with his knee on the side of the road, which was no justice at all. One of the most important Christian stories was told about a stranger on the side of the road. Had many people passed by. We humans have been walking by strangers in need by the side of the road for a long time. On Memorial Day, however, there were strangers that stopped, and the strangers were pleading with someone who was dressed in more more authority than they were and begged for mercy on behalf of another stranger. And when they got too close, the officer pulled out mace to threaten the pleading chorus not to come any closer as another officer assisted in creating a perimeter permitting Officer Chauvin to continue his would-be murder, even though we're supposed to say alleged How are we supposed to make sense that 60 years ago in this country, country, lynchings were regular occurrences and that an average white person or a group of white people could string up a black person in a tree while others cheered? But now a police officer can lynch a black man face down, totally immobilized, while others are begging for him to stop and he doesn't? Today, it would be illegal, let alone unseemly, and perhaps more importantly, unseemly, for a mob to do it. But when law enforcement deems it necessary, the same act is justified under the cover of a uniform and claims to law and order. At least that's what's been happening. Hopefully there won't be any protection to cover Officer Chauvin this time. It's already been said many times, but warrants being said many times over. The tragedy is not the destruction of property from the riots around this country. Rather, the tragedy is that, to some, it matters more than a handcuffed man being killed by a man in uniform. It's a disgrace to our country and, and disgrace to other men and women in uniform who carry out their duties with honor and courage. The tragedy is that we are unclear about how to respond in a way that this might actually happen less often. The tragedy is that we have no place to express rage and those who have lost a member of their family have nowhere to express their grief and Other families like them have had no justice served to them. And even if this particular officer is convicted of murder, that it is still too few convictions, 
And there's no promise that the next time an unarmed man is murdered by a badge that justice will be served because history says it likely won't? The tragedy is that we have so little real leadership right now that knows how to use their voice, role, office, station, authority to create anything like a new moral imagination about how we are going to be together now. Social distancing, uh, a key phrase of the last few months, is an important tactic when dealing with curbing the spread of an infectious disease. But did our country, our society, our cities really need anything that encouraged us to be any more socially distant from one another? The majority of our politics and religion and history and certainly the loudest voices claiming to speak as possessing the truth of these things, continue to, to define our social relationships in terms of us versus them. Bree Stoner, one of the hosts of the podcast, Another Name for Everything, said recently, pointing out a deep truth that there is no them. There is only us. A perspective of humanity that has been lost in our culture, but has been held and continues to be held by other cultures. Here in Grand Rapids, the planned peaceful protests over the murder of George Floyd were scheduled for 6 to 8 p.m. on Saturday evening. And it wasn't until well after that when the destruction began. There's been a pattern these past few nights where it, it seems large numbers come peacefully to protest the grotesque violence of Officer Chauvin. And then whether some portion of the protesters devolve into rioters, or indeed outside groups other than the residents of the city arrive to light and stoke the flames, we know that both are true. There are peaceful protests, and there are riots. And we would do well to not casually allow them to become spoken of as though they are the same. We would do well to speak of the protests separately from the riots because riots typically and are overshadowing the protests and the act that prompted them. And yet one of the challenges we have is to not separate the protesters from the rioters as though one group is good and the other is bad, but rather acknowledge that one acted lawfully and the other group did not, regardless of potential overlap. It's likely that we perpetuate the conditions for protests and riots when we speak of one group as though they are us and the other as though they are them. The mayor of Grand Rapids in a press conference on Sunday morning did what many leaders do and have done. Acknowledged the tragic death of George Floyd and then went on to condemn the riots and destruction by saying something like, this is not who we are as Grand Rapids. It's a common sentiment, understandable even. But then went on to say that who we are is the hundreds of people who spontaneously showed up Sunday morning to clean up, to sweep up glass, 
to cut and bring in plywood to board up the art museum whose facade is made of some of the largest panes of glass in the city, to clean up the trash and to scrub rage-filled obscenities off the police station, to continue to serve coffee standing next to the stop sign that had been used the night before to destroy their storefront. My wife even took our daughter down to see both the destruction and the cleanup efforts in attempts to expose our oldest child to the potential for great destruction and great care that live inside us as human beings. We can be and are ugly to one another. And we can remember our deep relatedness to one another that often goes untouched because we do not regularly dive any deeper than culture, station, color, or class that so often and too easily have us believe we are separate. The difficult truth is that we are all of these things, even Grand Rapids. We are the protesters and the rioters and those who clean up. The cleanup crew has the difficult role of holding the tension between sympathizing with the cause of the rioters while still making sure that the criminals receive their consequences, just as they must make sure that Officer Chauvin receives the necessary sentence for his criminal behavior. We cannot choose to only be the cooperation after the fact and dismiss the destruction the night before as though it is not us. It's true that Grand Rapids is a city who often bands together, but we are indeed also the destructive forces that demolished small businesses for no other reason than large glass windows are enticing and I imagine gratifying to destroy in the midst of outrage in a culture over a culture that has never found such rage culturally appropriate or acceptable. It's one thing when little white boys and girls have been taught for decades that anger and rage are not permissible, but it turns into something else when the lack of permission permits us to condemn others for justifiably expressing theirs even through illegal acts. George Floyd's death was illegal. And the horror is that vandalism and looting have always been illegal in this country. But a white man killing a black man in broad daylight has not always been illegal. And to miss the echoes of history ringing out from Minneapolis on Memorial Day is negligent. The murder of unarmed people by police, and in this case the murder of someone already in handcuffs, creates outrage because it violates a foundational trust upon which our society is built. One of the difficult things that we have to do is that we cannot say we are only the good parts of ourselves, that we are only the good parts of our city. If we can only include the parts that we like, then we are still divided internally and as a people because we are not only good, none of us. We might start off good, we might tell the story as I've been trying to tell that we start from a place of religious, of original goodness, but the way that we live is not always good. Riots happen 
in the midst of a culture of alienation and because of the experience of alienation. Riots do not happen where there's a sense of community and belonging and togetherness that truly includes all the people. Riots are a voice not only of rage, and perhaps immaturely so, but riots are the voice of separation, crying out. We, we are both the riots and we are the cleanup efforts. If we cannot include both the good will and the destruction, then we will remain divided, fragmented, separate, fractured. We were told by our mayor, like other mayors around the country, that the city's number one priority is safety. Is that what we need right now? On one hand, it's understandable, but is safety right now the number one need that we have? I ask this because a lot of things can be passed off in the name of safety. And while I do not question the sincerity of my particular mayor's intentions, the trouble is that safety is never brought about directly by its own means or by means of enforcement through whom we call safety officers. Particularly when it was an officer who disrupted the peace and safety to begin with. Safety comes through owning the alienation that still exists, to see it, to honor it. Rejecting the cause of the riots, rejecting the separation only emboldens the experience of alienation, drives the wedge further. Safety comes when we see the disparities in income and resources that exist, the differences in the neighborhoods, even in Grand Rapids, and admit how many white people of the suburbs are still leery of coming downtown because of their <laughs> safety. Now, safety doesn't come in being at the top of a priority list. Safety comes when the sheriff of Genesee County in which Flint, Michigan resides, puts down the riot gear and sees humanity in front of him and remembers that that is his job. He is not a safety officer and to the extent that he is, it, he is only as good as his ability to see the humanity of the humans with whom he is charged to protect. Walk with us, they said. Walk with us. Often the call in times like these is for more empathy. It seems that it's the most common thing we say these days when we struggle to not alienate one another is to say, well, it's just a lack of empathy. Try to understand what it's like to walk in their shoes, people say. The problem with empathy is that Sheriff Chris Swanson cannot walk in the shoes of the black residents of Flint any more than I can or than my wife and I can teach our daughter or young sons to do. We can't walk in their shoes, as empathy would suggest or demand. But we can walk with. We can choose to hear 
the pain, to hear the suffering. We can choose to stop shying away from vulnerability and allow our hearts to break and to walk with. There's a name for walking with someone. Compassion. The protesters in Genesee County were asking for compassion. Empathy gets a lot of airtime, but I'm not entirely sure how capable any of us are of empathy. As Rabbi Ed Friedman reminds us that empathy was a useful tool for studying art as it originated. But he is not convinced that convinced of its effectiveness in real life, in its ability to see other humans as it is obsessed with shoes. In fact, empathy's rise in popularity as a means to relate to one another might actually be perpetuating the very system it claims it can understand. We cannot walk in, but we can walk with. The trouble is that we all have things we carry. Ideas, prejudices, insecurities, fears both justified and politically inflamed. We carry these things that keep us from seeing the humanity of others even right in front of us. The things that we will have to be willing to lay down even just for an hour or so just like Sheriff Swanson had to lay down our culture's notions of safety represented by riot masks and batons if he was going to walk with the people of his county, as they asked. We may not be as capable of empathy as we'd like to think, and it really might be counterproductive right now. But I do know that we, as humans, are very capable of compassion. In fact, compassion may be one of the only things that has the power to change someone's mind, to unseat deeply helded beliefs, to see someone suffering and to have compassion as though it might also be your own. Maybe that's why Jesus taught about it so often and lived a life of obvious compassion. He knew that it wasn't about sympathy. It was about traveling with one another through the riots and the cleanup, alienating fewer people today than we did yesterday and making plans to alienate fewer people tomorrow than today. Do we have the emotional fortitude for that work? Are we willing to allow our hearts to break enough for that work? And no matter how much someone might cry out, yeah, come walk a mile in my shoes, it will never be as effective as walk with us. Because that's always possible. And perhaps in the end, there might be nothing else, nothing else, nothing more that any human being can ask of another except to walk with us. The simple question is, will we?